this is the um, the crackle on a microphone and so forth is all sort of the the uh, dirty manger effect of having an ox. Uh, that's what the, the book of the Bible says is that, you know, you can have a clean manger, but you don't have any ox if you have a clean manger. But uh, we were, we had a really dirty manger on Friday, praise the Lord. So hopefully you were able to join us and see our, our children's pageant once again. Man, every year it's just a highlight for me. It's just a, it's just a wonderful reminder of that the Lord is being good to us and faithful to us. And so I want to thank the ladies that, that, served so diligently for an extended period of time to make that happen. Christine and Emily and Alyssa for watching the kids faithfully time and time and time again. So I just want to thank those ladies and thank, thank all of you who had a part in bringing that to pass. Well, if you open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs chapter 10, we're going to read the first two verses today of Proverbs chapter 10. The first verse that says, A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. I once heard someone say that the depth of feelings that parenting brings is unlike any other role. Uh, a lot of our roles bring emotions and experiences. They're, they're really sort of like all fairly deep, but then there's this one... <laughs> area of life, this one thing that some of us are called to do, and that is parenting, and it feels like the emotions involved in that are just so much deeper than anything we had felt before, and it, it normally catches people by surprise because they thought that they were what they were, and then suddenly they have children, and it's like, oh my goodness, there's this whole other dimension of emotional experience that I didn't know about. It's sort of like, I think the uh, average depth of the ocean is something like 13,000 feet, which is really deep. But there's this one spot in the ocean, the Mariana Trench, and it's, it's almost three times as deep, right? I think it's 36,000, something like that. I know, I know if you put Mount Everest in the Mariana Trench, there would still be thousands and thousands of feet underwater. So it's sort of, parenting is like that. You, you go through your life in your 20s or whatever, and you think like, yeah, I'm like, I know life. I know, I know experiences and so on and so forth. Then you have kids, and you realize there's this whole other depth of feeling that exists. And that's what makes this verse for me, Proverbs 10.1, just one of those massive understatement verses that you find often in Scripture. It's just, so, it's just such a struggle to describe truth with words, but that's the best we have in many respects. But this saying, a wise son makes a glad father, I mean, there really isn't any higher feeling in life than to see your children walk with the Lord and pursue excellence in the Lord. I mean, so makes a glad father. Well, yeah, I'd say, I'd say Mary in a trench levels of glad, right? And then it says, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Again, massive understatement. The amount of pain one feels when your children aren't where they need to be is, is, is incomparable to any other feeling. And it's really interesting to me that God, who writes in the ink of reality, chose to make parenting, which I think is probably the deepest human experience, he chose to take parenting 
as his preferred metaphor to communicate things about his nature, specifically his Trinitarian nature. So primarily, God, God communicates to us through all kinds of metaphors and word pictures. In Ezekiel, he's the spurned lover, and all sorts of different kinds of metaphors, all with deep emotion. But when he really sets about to reveal himself most fully in his triunity, his triune nature most fully, he goes to this thing that many of us think is the deepest thing we've ever felt, which is parenting. He communicates us, he communicates his glory to us through the language of a father and a son. And so today I actually want to interact with this proverb, Proverbs 10, 1, and also 2, by, by pointing out things that are true about Jesus that we see in this particular passage. Let me read both verses to you again. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. It's always this incredible feeling to interact with ancient Hebrew words and find Jesus behind them smiling back at you. And many months ago, when I started outlining the book of Proverbs to preach through it, I had many experiences of looking through the Hebrew and seeing Jesus' smiling face on the other side, saying in a Luke 25, Emmaus Road kind of way, this is about me. The disciples who experienced Jesus on the Emmaus Road in Luke 25 said afterward, didn't our hearts burn as he walked with us? And showed us that all these things pertain to him. All these things meaning the whole of the Old Testament. During one of my morning devotionals, I was stumbling through. It's what you do when you have a morning devotional, uh, you know, at 5 a.m. I was stumbling through my text. And, you know, you just, it's almost might as well be Braille sometimes, you know. It, it really is just one of those things that where you just trust the process. And you just daily show up and essentially feel like a failure most of the times. And then, but then what, what someone once said to me was, it's like stacking kindling, and then every once in a while you get a fire. So you, you get up, you do the thing, you don't, you don't always feel anything when you do the thing, and then every once in a while the glory of God shines forth. And in First Peter, he's talking to the people, and he says this very interesting thing. He says, all the people in the Old Testament that wrote the Old Testament, they were led by the Spirit of Christ in writing the Old Testament. And so when I go to an Old Testament passage and I see Jesus smiling through the old Hebrew words, I know it's not just some coincidence and it's not some kind of eisegesis. This is I see Jesus. It really is. It really is the real thing. The spirit of Christ was behind this writing at the very beginning. I don't know if Solomon understood that there would be a son one day that made his father glad on a scale that could save the whole world. I don't know that but I know that the spirit of Christ who was inspiring the text knew that. And he knew that we would be sitting here this morning, a week before Christmas, eager to hear about the glory of Jesus and also be in Proverbs 10. So what does it mean? How can we think of Christ when we think of the text or the phrase, a wise son makes a glad father? Well, one thing we can talk about is, is that the day Jesus was born, the whole heavens rejoiced. Luke 2.28 says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. 
And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David who is a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was the angel, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's important to understand that angels don't sing on their own separate sheet of music. They wouldn't be in heaven if they did. So whatever they're feeling is what the Father's feeling. They are simply servants of what the Father is feeling. And so all over the rejoicing we see in the angels in this particular passage is really just the overflow of the Father's own rejoicing as he sees his son not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but takes the form of a servant and lies in a manger as a baby. And this is an important idea that really is the centerpiece of our whole understanding of why we should have confidence in God. We should have confidence in God because God is pleased with us. But we need to know why God is pleased with us. And the answer is, is because there was a wise son who made the father glad. Glad even that we would approach him. Glad even that we would be called children of God. And I would love to just take a whole sermon to tease out the pleasure of the Father in the Son throughout the scriptures. But let me just do a really quick run through a couple important points. This goes back all the way to the beginning, but you could go back certainly to Isaiah 42. The text that I read this morning is our call to worship. The verse 1 of chapter 42, God writes, Behold my servant who I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. And that's why the angels are singing above the shepherds that night. Because the father is delighting in his wise son. Jesus is wise. Again, another massive understatement. He is wise because he is God. But he's also wise because he knows the word. In fact, he is the word. And he's also wise because he knows better than to trust himself to man. He, he is wise because he works diligently and does not get discouraged. He is wise because he trusts in God. And he is wise because he falls to the ground like a seed to die so that he would bear much fruit. The wisdom of Jesus is perfect. And that means that the father's gladness in the son is perfect. And this is why we have a father who repeatedly says while Jesus is on the earth, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I can't think of many times, I wouldn't say I have a perfect memory of the Bible, but I'm pretty good at rolling through the pages and looking for things, and even in my head at this stage of my life, and I can't think of a time where God spoke out loud with a bunch of people around repeatedly the same message over a period of time. The only time that comes out is when Jesus is walking the earth, and the Father says repeatedly at his baptism in John chapter 12, and also at his transfiguration, I really like this guy. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. 
And when he says listen to him, he means all kinds of things. But one of the things he means is what Jesus said when he said, if you're thirsty, come to me for a drink. Let me be your savior. Stop trying to save yourself. And if you listen to him, you'll be part of the Father's gladness. C.S. Lewis describes this idea of the Father looking down on the Son and the Son being willing to become nothing and to become nothing so that he can lift everything up with him. I read this week that uh, 20-year-olds 20, 20 and 30-year-olds are leaving Christianity at some incredibly you know, rapid and apocalyptic rate, and I thought the answer to that is to tell 20- and 30-year-olds that Jesus came to save the whole freaking world, not just give you one little kind of bit of assurance that you can walk around with while you live the rest of your secular life. 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds are desperate to hear of a Savior who came to save the whole world, not just one aspect of one person's life. 20 and 30-year-olds want a king, Jesus. And what we see, not only in the scriptures, but in this quote from Lewis, is, is that's exactly what Jesus has come to do. Lewis writes, he comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. So the father delights in the son, yes, but we should delight that this delight the Father has in the Son seems to be spreading like a vine over everything. And it spreads over those who listen to him, and it might even spread over the whole creation itself. I think it does, but that's too much to get into now. So when we see a wise son makes a father glad, we see a whole lot of the gospel there. And what about this next line? A foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. There are multiple ways of going through this. One is that for the longest time, shortly after the fall, in fact, God promised women through Eve that he would one day raise up one of their sons to crush the head of the serpent. And the story of the Old Testament is sort of like one story that just breaks down into multiple little vignettes. And the, the vignettes are always basically the same. A good man is born. He has the chance to do everything right. He does a lot right. He whets our appetite. Perhaps he's the Messiah. Perhaps he's the one who will crush the dragon's head. And in the last chapter of his life, he wrecks it all. And a foolish son is found again. He wasn't the one. He wasn't the one to crush the serpent's head. We thought David really looked good for a while. We thought Moses might be the one. We thought maybe even Gideon. And over and over again, you'll find these men in some sad state at the end, curled up with a bunch of concubines trying to stay warm. That's David specifically. And so one way we could think about this idea that a foolish son makes, um, brings sorrow to a mother is... There have been a lot of moms in the Old Testament who wept for children they could not have. God gives them the miracle child, the improbable birth. This child seems like this might be the one, only it's just another victim 
under the serpent's bite at the end of the day. But there's another way to think about this. There's another way to think about it specifically related to Jesus. How is it that Jesus brought sorrow to his mother? Because he did. When Jesus was born, they brought him to the temple to be formally dedicated to the Lord. And when they were there, an old man named Simeon came up and said some things about Jesus. He had been waiting for the reconciliation or the consolation of Israel. Let me just read the text to you. It's in Luke chapter 2, verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory for glory to your people Israel. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And there must have been a physical sort of body language moment. He's saying this about Jesus. They must have physically looked differently because he turns to them and he blesses them. And then he says to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Most theologians agree that Simeon is prophesying about the extreme sorrow that Mary would feel in witnessing her son Jesus be crucified. Was Jesus bringing sorrow to his mother because he was foolish? No, but look at Proverbs 10, 13. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. On the lips of him who has understanding, wisdom is found, but a rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. A rod is for the back of him who lacks sense. Isaiah 53, 5 says, that Jesus, while Mary was watching him die, what was happening was he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And so in a very real sense, Mary is brokenhearted. A sword is piercing her soul as she watches her son being punished for our foolishness. That's what we see in, of Jesus in that second line. A foolish son brings sorrow to his mother. Was Jesus foolish? No, he was bearing our foolishness. And a sword was piercing the soul of his mother. But, but there's more. Look at the second verse. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. How does this relate to Christ? Well, let's think more deeply about that first line in verse 2. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. 
So the world was in darkness. That's the way that, say, John would describe the world before Christ came. And in Luke chapter 2, Zechariah, high priest, he says something really cool. sort of like what John says in the Gospel of John. He says this one line. He says, the sunrise has come. The sunrise has come. And one of the things that we see happening immediately in the story of Jesus' birth is that when the sunrise comes, the roaches start scattering. And in the Gospel of John, he would say that people love the darkness because their deeds were evil. Now let's think again about this line, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Here's, here's what Jesus found when he came to the earth. He found a lot of people who had made a lot of profit off of being dark, off of living in the darkness. And so one of the things that Simeon promised that we just saw a moment ago is, is that when this one comes, he will be for the opposition of many. Many will rise and many will fall as a consequence. Mary says it really well in her Magnificat in Luke chapter 1, verse 46. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Of course, Mary is saying this, and so we're thinking of how God has exalted her, a person of humble estate, a humble person. But part of her celebration is simply this. The proud, those who gain or seek to gain through wickedness, their days are numbered. Because Jesus is on the scene, and he is bringing with him justice. So what's going on when Jesus is born is, is that a sunrise happens, the light switch on, and the roaches start to scatter. And the first roach we see is a man named Herod. And he is, at least insofar as he is aware of his own thoughts, he is afraid that this baby who was born in Bethlehem can somehow take over his pit, rather pitiful reign. It's sort of like, uh, you, are not, you are not important enough to be the main part of this story, Herod. But Herod seems to have something working that we see working in a lot of these other characters we're going to see, and that is the spirit of darkness itself. Satan himself, I mean, Herod may not be aware of it, but I have a feeling someone else is working behind the scenes. That old serpent who is concerned, maybe more than concerned, that the one son who was born to crush his head has arrived. And so Herod's trying to protect his throne, but beneath him or in him, Satan is trying to protect his throne And what you begin to see are people taking violent action to hold on to the treasures they've gained through their wickedness. And Herod's the first one, and Judas is the prototypical or ultimate idea. Okay? And so Herod is scrambling to protect his kingdom, 
And in doing so, he orders all of the, uh, the boys in Bethlehem under the age of two to be executed. And he is just the first among many who try to, in the face of the light being turned on, of the light, the true light coming into the world, they are trying desperately to hold on to their power and their prestige and their possessions. And the next kind of group that we see after Herod tries and fails are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They thought he was, Jesus, going to single-handedly take every one of their treasures. And they were right. They loved to be praised by men, the Bible says. And Jesus was threatening that. They loved their positions of power and influence. And Jesus was threatening through that. They loved their self-righteousness. And Jesus saw right through it. And not only did he see right through it, he could speak compellingly and with authority about these people being, as he referred to them, whitewashed tombs. You're all clean on the outside, but inside you're just death. And he said, you know what, fellas? Your dad, your dad's the devil. What's going on inside of you right now, you think you're trying to protect your job or your money or your reputation, but there's another force at work in you, the deep force of darkness, and that force is trying to get you to kill me, thinking, knowing that I'm about to crush his head. And all of this sort of comes together in some kind of main conspiratorial meetings in the Gospels, and one of them is recorded in John 11, beginning in verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. This is just your your proof text of this desire to hold on to the thing you got wickedly by opposing Jesus. They say, if we don't do something, we're going to lose our nation. But Caiaphas who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. See, this is a very interesting thing about what the Bible tells us about people is that there's multiple levels going on, both for good and for bad, People are speak, spiritual forces are speaking through people on a fairly regular basis. And so they says, verse 23 says, or 53 says, so from that day on, they made plans to put them to death, put him to death. And this idea that we're reading about in Proverbs 10, 2, that, that treasures gained through wickedness do not profit, as I said, the ultimate archetype of that is Jews. He betrays Jesus in exchange for treasure. And at one level, he's operating simply as a man who loves money. The Bible says he was actually frequently stealing from Jesus' own treasury all along. The Bible's pretty clear about the motivation of Judas. It was greed. It'd probably be wise for us to not overcomplicate Judas' known aspirations at his level of understanding. He was a greedy man. He liked money. He was trying to get this life figured out by the accumulation of possessions. But the Bible says that after Judas had done the bidding of darkness, I see there's another level operating beneath him, 
he took his money and threw it at the temple and ran away and hung himself. Thus, Proverbs 10.2, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, points us to the story of Jesus, both in a sort of ultimate climactic way. This is how Jesus got on the cross. And also as a reminder that every single one of these people who fought so hard to protect their stuff lost in the end. Herod was dead shortly after he decreed death upon everyone else. This, this aspiration in the text in, in, in where, where the, the high priest says, we've got to kill him so we can keep our nation. Friends, it wasn't a few decades until Rome surrounded the city of Jerusalem and left no, no stone unturned, destroyed and pillaged the city. Every one of these people who sought to keep and preserve their treasures accumulated by wickedness found Proverbs 10, 2 to be true. Treasures attained by wickedness do not profit. Well, we go to the last line. But righteousness delivers from death. But righteousness delivers from death. Well, now we have told the story in such a way that Jesus was born and he was destined to go to the cross to be a payment for our sins. And the way that he got to the cross was a bunch of people who were wicked, trying to preserve their own power and prestige and possessions, put him there. And so now we have a Jesus who is crucified, dead and buried, and we get to the end of Proverbs 10, 2, and see this beautiful statement. And just as we can say, that the wisdom that makes the Father glad is a kind of wisdom that is perfect and ultimate and a kind of gladness that is perfect and ultimate. We can say that the righteousness described here of Christ is an ultimate kind of righteousness, delivering from death in just about any way you can think of death. This week, and I won't go through it all today, this week I wrote, Ten ways Jesus delivers us from death. Or ten ways Jesus' righteousness delivers from death. And the first one is pretty clear. Jesus' righteousness delivered him from death. Right? Jesus' righteousness delivered him from death. Jesus, throughout his life, did not cling to anything other than righteousness. He had no money he really didn't have friends that you might think of as friends. He says, foxes have holes and birds have nests. The son of man has no place to lay his head. When it came time to pay a temple tax, he had to find a coin, send Peter to find a coin in the mouth of a fish. Jesus chose to live this life in an exceedingly spare way. He did not really cling to anything other than to be righteous. When he came to earth, he left the treasuries of heaven Behind, and he didn't even consider equality with God something to be grasped. He did not hold on to anything but God. And he allowed the dark forces to arrest him and beat him and execute him. And he allowed all of our sins to be put upon him. And you would think such a man with no resources, buried under the avalanche of human sin, overcome by every single smart, prosperous, person with power, 
on the scene in Jerusalem at the time, you would think, well, this is a man you'll never hear of again. He has been thoroughly buried by his own poverty, by the riches of everyone else, by the power of everyone else, let alone by the sins of everyone else. But as great as all that was, his righteousness was greater and much greater to the effect that you can imagine as big of a mountain of sin and disgusting wickedness piled on top of this man, you can imagine in some kind of a superhero way, you're thinking, well, that's the end of that. And he emerges, not only, not only escapes, he emerges having destroyed that mountain of sin. He actually puts a death to death. He puts death to death. So, so this idea of righteousness delivering from death, there's no one that's more, that's more true of than Jesus Christ, who was dead but rose again. And he rose again because, as Peter says in Acts 2, the grave could not hold him. So Jesus is delivered from his own death by his righteousness. But of course, there's a lot more to say. Jesus has not only been delivered from his own death by his righteousness, but he has done such a work so that we can join with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and say, death itself is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O grave, where is your sting? Jesus made a bunch of us, to be honest, in a godly sense, insufferably cocky. That's what we should be as it relates to trusting God, facing fear, dealing with risk, and so on and so forth. My God has overcome the grave with his righteousness. So let me just give you, and I won't read all the text because that will be the thing that will take forever, but I did compile a slide that shows you, and I posted this online in my sermon notes so that if you might have extra time this week, you could sit down, maybe read one or two of these a day and look up the scriptures that are associated with it. Jesus, through his righteousness, overcame his physical death, Acts 2, 22 through 24. He also overcame the spiritual death of those he would save. This is a familiar passage for many of you, Ephesians 2, 1 through 7, and you were dead in your sins and trespasses, dot, dot, dot but he rose us up with him. Number three, Jesus' righteousness delivers us from the fear of death. Jesus' righteousness delivers us from the fear of death. And I posted many verses here. One I accidentally posted twice in my notes. Philippians 1.21, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Insufferably cocky of, Peter, of Paul to say such a thing. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And in Hebrews 2, in particular, we are told in Hebrews 2, since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus' righteousness makes it possible for me 
to not be a slave to the fear of death, to live a life that sees death as a necessary consequence, but not something that is motivating the way I live. Or to say it more accurately, not something that is taking away my life with its power to make me afraid. Jesus' righteousness took away the finality of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 57. John 11, 25 through 26. John 11. I am the resurrection and the life, Martha. Anyone who believes in me, though he's dead, will not stay dead. And then he ends. Do you believe that? Jesus' righteousness takes away his own death, our spiritual death, the fear of physical death, the finality of death. Jesus' righteousness takes away a big part of the sting we feel over grief, involved in grief, when someone we love dies. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 is where Paul says, we do not grieve without hope. Jesus' righteousness takes away the second death, Revelation 2, 10 through 11, and 21, 5 through 8. This is essentially where Jesus says in a couple places, if you can endure and trust me and walk with me, you will not taste the second death, the second death being hell. But Jesus' righteousness also affects the death that is at work in the world. What do I mean by that? Well, let me read this one to you. Romans 8, 18. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility. Futility, just hold that word from, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Corruption is very equivalent to death. Futility and corruption, deathy kind of things. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. God has a plan to restore creation to its precursed state. And that creation will be devoid of the futility that God pronounced upon it as a consequence of man's sin. Essentially, when God cursed the world and said there will be thorns and thistles and pain and childbearing and so on and so forth, what he was doing was creating friction. Friction for us. Friction for the human soul. Why would he create friction for the human soul? So we don't go off the rails entirely. He wanted creation to somehow remind us that we are broken and need redemption. And the day is coming when all the children of God will be gathered in and all of them will be raised from death to imperishable glory and the creation itself will be released from the curse that has been subjected upon it because the friction is no longer needed. We can all glide along smoothly forever and ever in the joy of our Lord. So that's another way that Jesus' righteousness has delivered us from death. Jesus' righteousness has delivered us from the dragon, from that old dragon. The prophecy told in Genesis 3.15 has come true. There was one who would crush the head of the serpent. 
and he has been defeated. Jesus' righteousness, we're going to talk about this in two weeks. Jesus' righteousness delivers us from dead works. There's a whole other system. People, many, most people, I guess you might say, are still under this system thinking that the way to please God is by doing stuff. And the New Testament refers to this, or to earn their salvation is by doing stuff. And the New Testament refers to this as dead works. And one of the many kinds of death that Jesus' righteousness has freed us from is this idea of pursuing salvation through grind and hustle and man-made religion and self-righteousness. And friends, a life lived in that vein of trying to be a good enough person, that is the quintessence of what Proverbs says. There is a, a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And when Jesus came and offered his righteousness on the cross on our behalf and overcame all of these deaths, one of the deaths he overcame was this foolishness, this idea that we could ever do what Jesus did for us. It's simply a misunderstanding of the debt we owe, of the standard God holds, of the holiness of God. And Jesus came and abolished all of that nonsense and pointed out the futility of salvation via works. It's like, you don't have enough righteousness, friend. And Jesus freed us from that death. And he also freed us from works that bring death. One of the very real consequences of Jesus coming and living and dying and being raised for us is that we are delivered from those behaviors which actually bring death into our life. The kinds of behaviors that Peter would say wage war against our souls. Paul writes about that a lot in Romans 6. He says, do not be deceived. I'm sorry, this is, a, this is Galatians 7, Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Corruption is just another way of talking about death. If you live in the flesh, you're going to get death. If you sow fleshly things, you're going to get death. You're going to get a harvest of death. And the truth is, because what Ephesians 2 tells us, for instance, is that's our only choice apart from Christ. We are by nature children of wrath and sons of disobedience, sowing seeds of corruption daily. And then we look around and our life's full of weeds. We're like, what happened? Those weeds came from seeds, my friend. And Jesus has freed us from the need to sin. Jesus has freed us from the bondage of sin. Jesus has freed us from a life that is only sowing the seeds of corruption. And there's a temptation, and it's very common in our particular theological silo, to say free grace means free life. I get to do whatever I want. And Paul anticipates this. As he's presenting the gospel in the book of Romans, he anticipates this. He knows that if he preaches the gospel faithfully, this will be an obvious uh, conclusion some will make. And so in Romans 6, 15, he says, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? 
either of sin, which leads to death, and, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And so Jesus, in saving us, makes it possible for us to get on the path of obedience that leads to life and life and life and life and life, and to get off of the path of disobedience that leads only to death. Paul continues in verse 17, but thanks be to God that you were once slaves, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have, have become slaves of righteousness. For I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting from that time, doing the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Jesus' righteousness delivers us from, I don't think I got them all, by the way. Death upon death upon death upon death. And one of the deaths that he's delivered us from is the death of walking in the flesh and living as slaves to sin. He says in verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin, you have become slaves of God. The fruit you get will lead to sanctification and in its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin, we know this one, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that is how, in a relatively brief exposition, you find Jesus smiling back at you through a bunch of really old Hebrew words. And it was always intended to be that way. For he wrote those words, and he came and fulfilled those words. He is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that word took on flesh and come to live and die for you and I so that we could be freed from all the many entanglements of death that so easily entangle our little hearts. I think for communion today, the idea is pretty simple. The death that he died was for you to live the death that he died was to bring you life and freedom from death upon death upon death. So let me pray. And if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to come. I want you to partake of this table with a heart of gratitude. Lord God, we love you. He who is mighty has done great things. As we come to this table, warm our hearts with faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.